Come on. Ah, thank you. Please, you may be seated. Ah, what a pleasure. I enjoyed worship tonight. I did. Man, I liked that a lot. And you learned that chorus, that old chorus? I wrote that chorus last week. <coughs> no, I didn't. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you very much. Um, go back a few years. I was leading a church. I led a church in Melbourne called Kephorse Church for nearly 30 years. <coughs> um, some years ago, on a Sunday night, I debated an atheist. He was a, a bit of a follower of Richard Dawkins, who'd written his book, The God Delusion. And uh, he believed that he could help us out by explaining uh, how we're all deluded. <clears throat> so I invited him to church. It was the biggest meeting we ever held. Actually, we, had, we sold 1,500 tickets for church and gave the money to the children's hospital. And then we debated whether Christianity was a delusion. Um, it was a great night and we had... Uh, um, two hours of solid and um, gracious debate. And there was, no, there was no ugliness about it. There was uh, a good, just a, a decent tenor to it, listening to each other. And in the middle, we, we stopped and we were permitted, under the rules of the debate, to ask each other a question. And uh, <clears throat> he asked me a question. He said, how do you know that your religion is true? How do you know that Jesus is the right one and when I think back I hadn't anticipated him asking such a good question I thought he'd ask me something something kind of weird or but it was a great question and I hadn't prepared for it and as a result I kind of stumbled away and I, I, I probably said far too much uh, and that the more I thought about the question it's one of the questions the best questions a person could ever ask is how do you know that Jesus really is the real deal. How do you know that? That's a great question. Um, there were many aspects to it, and I could have discussed um, issues like how, why is there something instead of nothing? It's one of the greatest philosophical questions that mankind has ever wrestled with. Why is there something instead of nothing? Um, the, I could have talked, and I did, I kind of talked about the origin of all things and the origin of life and the nature of mankind. I mentioned the authenticity of the, and trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, I talked a little bit about the history of Israel, um, the reality of prophecy, and finally got to Jesus, and I just wish I'd said, uh, well, it's a pretty simple answer. Why do I know that Jesus is the right one? And the answer is because he had the fingerprints of God. Why didn't I come out with that? Well, it took me a long time to, to, to kind of distill it to that. But if anyone asks me that question again, that's what I'm going to say. Let me talk to you about the fingerprints of God. One of the great things about fingerprints is that they identify. So they're unique. Um, if, if they find your fingerprints, they didn't come from someone else, they came from you. And my answer or should have simply been, I'll tell you why I know Jesus is the real deal, because he carried the fingerprints of God. And I want to mention, I'm going to just mention a few of those fingerprints tonight, but then I want to focus on one that changed my life. Um, the fingerprints of God. The first, and, and if you want to go back at some point, you could just go back, if you want to read, go to the Gospel of Mark, the first five chapters will have all of these fingerprints right there in them. Go home and read it for yourself tonight. 
the first fingerprint of God and one that is often overlooked, especially in a negative environment in which Western civilization currently exists. Right now, the media and the, the way in which um, life is reported through the media is very hostile to Christianity. By and large, it's hostile. They try to present Christianity in as dumb a light as possible. And as a result, we've, we've lost touch with one of the great fingerprints of, of God in the life of Jesus, and that was the extraordinary authority of his teaching. The Bible says in Mark chapter 1, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The teaching of Jesus is the foundation of a nation's greatness. And one of the tragedies in Western civilization is that for all of our mistakes, the mistakes we have made, why is it that everybody kind of wants to get into a Western nation? And that is because there is a lifestyle accessible in Western civilization that you don't find in other places on the face of the earth. And that's why they'd like to leave there and come here. But it's not the consequence of us being smarter than other people. We are the beneficiaries of the most wonderful teaching. It flowed from the mouth of the Son of God. And everything he said was for the blessing and for the prosperity of, of humanity. Everything he said. I've been asked people, show me one dumb thing that Jesus ever said. Show me one thing he said, which if we put it into practice would, would damage uh, our nation, damage our family, damage our personality. And the answer is you can't find one. And that's why Jesus could say, if anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness. I'm fascinated, for example, by our American friends who think that somehow the insights that have given rise to, to democracy and the ability to live in relative peace, in relatively, relative peace, are the product of our brilliant imagination. When Thomas Jefferson was penning the American Declaration of Independence, he started with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, that's very interesting, Thomas. If it was self-evident, how come it wasn't self-evident to the brilliant Greeks? Well, as I say, that it was self-evident. The Greeks are the foundation of democracy. Oh, yeah, not democracy as you and I live in it today. If you lived in the democracy of Greece, all men were never perceived to be equal. There were a few people who shared in the capacity to, to guide and to direct the community, but there was never any sense. No slave, no woman was ever seen uh, to be equal. The Romans never got it figured out. It came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. It came out of the merciful and the powerful teaching of Jesus that has so touched the way we view humanity and the way we view life. We think we must have thought this up ourselves. It came out of the mouth of Jesus. And one of the tragedies in Western civilizations is we have forgotten that we are the beneficiaries of the most extraordinary teaching the world will ever hear because it came out of the mouth of Christ and we could focus on that fingerprint alone. We'll leave that and go to the second one. And that is that Jesus Christ demonstrated the fingerprints of God as he dealt with the issue of sickness in human experience. The Bible records in Mark 1, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told Jesus about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up 
and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Jesus demonstrated the fingerprints of God in his capacity to rule over sickness of every imaginable kind. And I know people ask me, say, well, Al, why do you believe that? Well, partly I believe it because it's in the Bible, but partly believe it because I've been in this game for the last 40 or 50 years. I spent the first week of my full-time ministry with Derek Prince. Uh, I was a driver for a week for, with Benz, for Benson Edo, the great miracle worker from Nigeria. I've had my own personal experiences. I wish I, could, I had had more of them, but I will never forget preaching in India in, in a little village as the sun that went down and they led a blind man into the camp. He'd only been blind for three weeks. They led him into the camp and I just had a sense that God was going to do a miracle in his life. I preached on the verse from Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. And I declared that Jesus Christ was God's answer to every curse in human experience. And at the end of it, I stood him up and prayed over him. He fell on the ground and he was yabbering away in his own tongue. And I said, what's he saying? And they said, he's having a vision. So they were describing the vision. And when he stood up, he was still blind. And I was disappointed. But they led, him into a, they led him to a room. And later that night, afterwards, he described it to me. He said, my blindness was like looking at two grey curtains. And as I was sitting there, it's like the curtains caught fire. And they just burned away. And I could see. And he ran screaming out into the village. And most of that village came to Christ that day. I've... <clears throat> I've been around enough and I've seen enough to say that this stuff is not simply not fantasy written in the Bible. It is the fingerprints of God on the life of Jesus Christ. The third is the capacity of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. You say, oh, that's not much. Well, just you wait till the day of judgment. You'll discover how incredible it is to discover the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says in Mark chapter 2, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know what brought you to church tonight. Lots of things bring people to church. But you need to know this. You are a human being. You are not an animal. You are a human being. And one of the grand things about a human being is all the possibilities it opens up. But one of the terrifying things about a human being is the responsibility that comes with it. The responsibility before the creator of the heavens and the earth. For you are made in his image and you are accountable. I am accountable for the things I do and the things I say and the things I think. And sin is not just... Uh, some kind of theoretical position. It's the reality of the brokenness of our human lives. What an extraordinary thing to know that your sins can be totally forgiven. That you could wake up in the morning totally and utterly forgiven and in the presence of God as if you had never sinned once in your life, even more than that, that you were, as, you were viewed in heaven's eyes as righteous as Jesus Christ himself the righteousness of God that comes by faith. 
There is no greater gift that you could imagine, for everything else flows from that. If you can be forgiven, then heaven can be your home, because the Bible has promised that when God establishes the new heaven and the new earth, nothing that defiles will ever be allowed inside again. And I say, thank God. We're sick of the trouble. We're sick of the pain and the suffering. And God says there will come a time when all of that stuff will be outside the city and nothing that defiles will be allowed in. And that means I need to be as perfect in the eyes of heaven as Jesus himself. It comes as a free gift from heaven. You say, well, why would you believe that? Well, partly because of what happened next. The Bible says now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, they said. No one can forgive sins but God alone. That's right, fingerprints of God. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, he said, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. No, you didn't. You just saw the fingerprints of God demonstrated in the life of Jesus. He forgives sins and demonstrated the impossible to underline the reality of that promise. It is not a pipe dream. It is the promise of God. Then there comes the fourth of those fingerprints, the power of Jesus Christ to speak to dumb stuff and have it obey him. I can't even move a paperclip. I've sat at my desk more than once and sought to move a paperclip by faith. And I've never moved one yet. But the Bible says about Jesus, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. One of the fascinating questions that science is wrestling with to this day is what is matter? What is it? What is the matter of the universe? Where did it come from? Science's great answer to the, or to the origin of matter is to tell us that there was an explosion in absolutely nothing and out of that explosion everything just simply blooped into existence. But it's a fascinating question. What is substance actually made of? What is the quantum, the smallest possible divisible uh, issue involved in, in material substance? What is it? And no one yet knows. When I was doing physics and chemistry at high school, it was a lot simpler. In those days, we only knew about protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now, no one really knew what an electron was. They, they describe it and what a proton was or where it came from or how a neutron ever came to exist. 
But since that time, things have become impossibly complicated. As you try to break, what's, what's an electron? What is a pro, what's it made of? And as you break it down into the smaller and smaller, attempt to get to the quantum, the smallest possible division, division of substance, no one really knows what it is. It seems to be nothing more than a vibration. It's like somebody spoke, and what's here is the vibration that emanated from his voice. Funny thing about it is it seems to know who the master is, a bit like a good dog. And when the master speaks, all those little resonations seem to just respond to his voice in a way that you'd say, well, how come? Because he's the master, that's why. When Jesus spoke, the Bible says all things were made through him and by him. And when he speaks, those little vibrations, the string theory attempts to try to describe what it might be like, no one really knows. It just, it's like the universe is made up out of a song of some kind. Someone spoke and here it is, vibrations. But those vibrations know who the master is and every time he spoke, matter itself obeyed like an obedient little poodle. It would sit there and wag its tail and say, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. Anything you say, three bags full, sir, for you. <laughs> Jesus Christ exercised authority over matter itself, the fingerprints of God. Then, of course, one of the most marvelous is his, the fingerprint of God in the capacity of Jesus to demonstrate the, his, his control over death. The Bible says, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that so she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the, this, the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The reason Jesus Christ was crucified at the end of the day was as a result of two things. Firstly, because he kept on saying that God was his father and to the Jews it was so blasphemous that he could consider that he came down from heaven, he ought to be killed. The second was he raised a man from the dead. Now, this took place well away from Jerusalem. The problem with raising someone from the dead near Jerusalem is that that's where the Sadducees had their seat of power. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and then in Bethany, just two miles, 40 minutes walk from Jerusalem, a friend of Jesus died in Bethany and was in, and was in the grave for four days. And then Jesus raised him from the dead and you would think that would impress people. You would think if you raised a dude from the dead after four days, you'd say someone ought to listen to a guy like that. But not when your heart is hard. I've had lots of people say to me, if God would just do a big miracle, I would believe. And I would have to say to you, I'm not so sure about that. See, I've seen lots of people who believed when they didn't see a miracle. And I've watched people who saw a miracle say, I wonder what caused that. I wonder how that would happen. I, I suppose that must be mind over matter then. Apparently, it doesn't matter what kind of miracle you see. 
when your heart is disposed to be hostile, nothing you see will ever convince you of anything. It comes down to the condition of the heart, not to say you've got to believe nonsense, but you would have thought raising him from the dead after four days would have uh, produced a different response, but it did not. They went out from watching that and saying, someone ought to kill this dude, he's going to create more trouble. You say, oh, why do you believe that? Because I keep on bumping into people who have, been, who have raised people from the dead. I drove, as I say, I was a driver for Benson Ederhoser for a solid week. And he met his wife by raising her, her brother from the dead. And I said, explain that to me. He told me how he was one day in a Bible study when they said, Jesus said, raise the dead. He said, Pastor, have we raised anyone from the dead? He said, no. He said, I'm going to try. He got on his bicycle and rode around all, all day in Nigeria looking for a dead person. In Nigeria, it's a lot easier to find a dead person than it is in Auckland. It's not easy to find a dead person in Auckland. He found one within that, that four o'clock that afternoon. Went in and had a crack at it on his, the basis of his Bible study. Raised the kid from the dead and his sister married him as a result. It's a very impressive result. I was in Nagaland. I was in Nagaland and I sat down with a school teacher who, had, who told me a story of some people, some, some um, parents who brought to him a dead child. The child had been dead for hours and it was stone cold. And he said, I told them to go and kneel and to tell, God, repent of every one of their sins. And he said, for three hours they were there on their knees, just repenting to God of everything they'd ever done and asking God for mercy. He said, I simply held that stone cold child in my arms and I prayed, and about three hours later, warmth came back into the child's body, and next thing he coughed and he was alive again. I've, I've just met too many people to say, well, that, that's just a story in the Bible. No, 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 it's not just a story in the Bible. It's the fingerprints of God. It's the fingerprints of God. And you ought to thank God for it. You ought to thank God for it, because the fact is, every single one. You know, they say the only things in life that are certain are death and taxes. But I know people who don't pay any taxes. <laughs> I think the only certain thing in life absolutely is death. It's an extraordinary thing. That great poem, Horatius at the Bridge. Then out spake brave Horatius, the keeper of the gate. To every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And that's the truth. The reality is that death comes to all. I want you to know that there is no greater comfort in this life when you've buried a loved one, to know this, that my God has the fingerprints of the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Fear not, I have overcome the evil one. But here's the one that got me. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he commands even unclean spirits. And they obey him. I grew up thinking you could never really know if Jesus Christ was the real deal until you died. I was convinced of that. I thought, well, how could you ever know? Because my experience of church had none of these fingerprints attached to it. It wasn't that we didn't believe, it's just we never saw anything of that nature happening 
in our experience. And as a result, um, I just thought, well, you'll never know for sure. I, I, I kind of believe it. I do, but I guess you'll never know till you die. And then if Jesus is there, you'll say, whoopee, I'm so glad. And then it'll be, it'll be fantastic. But it was the charismatic movement in Australia that confronted my traditional Lutheran experience. Now, first, my wife got baptised in the Holy Spirit and came home speaking in tongues. Well, we hadn't seen any of that in our church either. Uh, and then my mother, 52-year-old, my 52-year-old Lutheran mum got baptised in the Holy Spirit and became an extraordinary tongue-speaking prayer warrior. And I began to realise that some, this stuff is creeping into my world, <laughs> stuff that you can actually see. Then I happened to come across a book called Can a Christian Have a Demon by Don Basham. Seven days later, I had my first encounter in, a, in my kitchen with a young girl called Christine. Her father had been my Sunday school superintendent. And I remember saying to him one day, he was a psychologist and a superintendent of our Sunday school. I remember saying to him, David, what do you think about this thing in the Bible where Jesus casts out demons? And he said to me, well, I think that's just, you know, demonstrates that the Bible was written in an age when they didn't understand mental illness. And actually, the guy was mentally ill, and, and they used the word evil spirit to explain what, you know, was unexplainable to them. But we now know that would just be um, a mental illness. Later on, that same guy found himself deeply attracted to the yoga teacher uh, over the back fence. He was a father married to a lovely woman with four kids of his own, but he was now attracted to the yoga teacher over the back fence. He went away for a week to a prison for the criminally insane, where another of his friends, who was a psychologist, oversaw the mental... I was going to say the mental health, but I'm not sure there was any mental health in that place. Uh, he oversaw the kind of the mental management of the prisoners, and there in that environment, he contemplated for seven days what he should do and came home and left his wife, uh, went off with the yoga teacher and broke his children's hearts. As a consequence of that, one of his daughters went into a very deep and destructive depression. Now, by no means am I saying that all depression is demons, but hers was. Every time we got into a prayer meeting or a worship session of any kind, she would start blubbering <laughs> and she would have to go out of the room. She couldn't stay in an environment where there was any prayer or faith or worship of any kind. We were in my kitchen that night after I'd read that book and we were talking about the, the wonder of speaking in tongues, this thing that was happening. And she started it up. <laughs> and I said to her, oh, don't do that. And she said, I can't stop. And I thought, well, I wonder if this kid's being manipulated. So I just thought I'll try it out in the book. They just confront those things in the name of Jesus. So I said to her, in the name of Jesus, leave her alone. And she fell off the chair on the floor, bang, and she begins to scream. Now, in the book, demons come out, but in my house, they, they just scream a lot. So... <laughs> Now, I'm now in uncharted territory. I've never seen this before. Then an extraordinary thing happened. I've seen this many times since. But the phone rang. Right in the middle of, of this, the phone rang. And I go and answer the phone, and it's her mother. And she said, where's my daughter? Oh, no problem. She'll be home really soon. <laughs> and, I, and I hung up. What provoked her to phone right then? Why now? 
Why right in the middle of this? I was in Bible college that following year and I heard some stories that were very helpful, which I'll explain in a moment. Well, now in my kitchen, I have a girl screaming and I get down on the ground and I start saying, the name of Jesus, leave, and now I discover something. I discover I may be doubtful over who Jesus is, but there are unseen spirits who are not one bit doubtful of who Jesus is. And now she starts screaming, something's trying to kill me. Something's trying to strangle me. And over the next moments, we prayed and exercised whatever faith, little bit of faith we had. And suddenly, bang, and that thing came out. And she, the burst of joy on her face, she said, it's gone, it's gone. I, I felt it leave. And that filthy depression lifted from her and departed. And in a moment of time, that girl was suddenly free from something that had sat on her life for two years. Interesting. The Bible says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven even with the little faith we had we saw that passage demonstrated in my life and it changed my life now as i began to to get a handle on this i began to reflect on my on, on my own experiences and i recognized that a number of years before i'd had a similar affliction you see when i first started taking out helen god was setting up my future i was out in the front yard about three or four months into our courtship and I had never known a day of depression in my life. And suddenly, it was like I was run over by a black truck. It just, boom, it was just, I was overwhelmed. And my whole world went dark. And, I've, and I felt like I'll never be happy again my entire life. And with it came a voice. Get Helen out of your life. That girl needs to get out of your life. That, that get her, she's the problem. She's, and, and I was so puzzled, I drove around to Helen's house. And I said to her, I don't think we can go out anymore. And she cried. And she said, why? And I said, I don't know. And realising the stupidity of what was happening, I drove across town to my sister. She was a Christian. And she was um, spirit-filled. And we talked. And it was obvious, this, this, this doesn't make an ounce of sense. So I drove back to her and I said, I think we'll be okay. But for the next, <laughs> for the next nine months, that thing tormented me. And when the call of God came, it backed off. But then it would come again. It reappeared in my life a number of years later when Helen and I began to outreach in our high school. And we opened our home on a Friday night and hundreds of kids would turn up in our house. And I'd preach to them every Friday night. Funny thing is about Thursday night, you'd start getting depressed. And all through th Friday, you'd feel like this strange weight on your life. And one weekend, it was so bad, just the entire weekend, I was miserable. And it was like a voice was talking to me. You need to stop doing what you're doing. No one's going to get saved because of you. You're making a fool of yourself. Everybody thinks you're an idiot. And it was on and on and on. And just nagging, nagging all through that day. I went and had a bath in the afternoon. That night, I was so sorry. I thought, I'll, go, I'll soak in hot water and see if that makes me feel happier. And while I was lying in the hot water, a, th a thought occurred to me. At least I'm honouring the Lordship of Jesus. He's called me to preach and I'm, uh, at least I'm doing it. And 
And, and so even if I'm depressed for the rest of my life, at least I'll be obedient in the middle of it. And I said it out loud. I said, Satan, I don't care if I'm depressed for the rest of my life. I'm just going to tell everyone about Jesus. Amen. Now, you know you have, sometimes you have a shower and the bathroom fills up with steam. And yet within a minute or two, all that steam's gone. Have you ever asked yourself where it goes? Where's it gone? Well, it's condensed onto the walls and that's why your walls are wet. But that's what happened over the next few moments. I'd been depressed all weekend. And suddenly the atmosphere began to clear. And within minutes, I wasn't depressed anymore. And, and then I couldn't even remember why I'd been depressed. And that's when the penny began to drop. I think someone's yanking my chain. I think I'm being visited and I'm being pressurised. And out of that, I learned that what the Bible says about exercising authority over that unseen kingdom is actually true. Yeah, there is a, a two-kingdom battle going on. And you and I are living in a war zone. There is a war for the souls of people yeah. going on. And Jesus said, the thief only comes to kill and to steal and destroy. He doesn't come to do you any good. And as a result, I began to learn a few things about how to fight for myself. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. And I discovered that when I really trust the cross of Jesus and I use my mouth to proclaim his bigness, the atmosphere begins to clear. I had one experience after another. One of the most stunning experiences occurred when I, a year or so later, had moved on to become a youth pastor and I had come become kind of familiar with this issue of dealing with demons in people's lives. One day I went to preach at a youth camp and I was hoping for great things and nothing much was happening. Felt like I was shooting people with blanks. Nothing was happening. And I came home miserable. I said to God, there's got to be more than this. I'm going to fast and pray to see your power at work. So I started fasting. One day, two, three, four, five, six. On the seventh day, a young police officer came to see me in my office. He'd been taking out a girl that I led to Christ as a high school teacher. He had made a pass at her. She had rebuked him in Jesus' name and he had dropped unconscious on the ground. And then when he came to, she said to him, you better go see my pastor. So now he's sitting in my office, a young motorcycle police officer. He said to me, what do you think happened to me? I said, well, we'll talk about that later. Let's talk about Jesus. So for 40 minutes, I talked to him about the fingerprints of God in the life of Jesus. And at the end of it, he said, I think I want to give my life to Christ. So I led him in a prayer of salvation. And as I led him in a prayer of salvation, he fell off his chair, bang, onto the floor and began to writhe around on the ground like a snake. Now, I had seen that before, so it wasn't, I wasn't impressed. I went and got myself a cup of coffee. <laughs> I came back and sat down with my cup of coffee and I waited till he came to. When he came to, I said to him, young man, you are demonized. I don't know how it happened, but you are. Now, here's what we could do. I could yell at it. It might come out right now. But if I was in your state, you needed not only give your life to Christ, I would run to Jesus and get baptized as quick as I could. Because, you see, that's how you sign the relationship with Jesus. Bible says repent and be baptized. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what you need. Now, tomorrow we have a healing meeting. If you're prepared to come, and if you're prepared to yield your life lock, stock and barrel to Christ, he will set you free. Get baptized and set you free. Next morning he turns up. I've now been fasting for eight days. 
He, um, I, I spoke for 10 minutes on the covenant of baptism. Out he came to get baptised and out came a woman dying of cancer and a, and a young woman. They'd never heard about baptism before, out they came. So I said, before we go to the healing meeting, we're going to baptise these people. And I put the young police officer in the water and I baptised him and that demon came up and went nuts. Here is this ordinarily sane police officer sitting in the water, screaming and wailing like a banshee, trying to hide himself under the water. You can't hide under the water for long periods of time. So I'd go under and get him and drag him up, and he'd go, oh, and he, down he would go again. I'm, he must have got baptised a dozen times. <laughs> but I said to the guy with me, he is not getting out of this water till that filthy thing breaks and goes. For the next 40 minutes, that thing wailed and, could, and cried and carried on. Eventually, I got sick of it. I grabbed him by his ears and I pulled his face up to mine and I rebuked that thing and his eyes went bright red and bang, out it came. He sat there bawling like a baby. Jesus, I'll follow you all the days of my life. Got out of the water, sat on a chair and the Holy Spirit fell on him. He started speaking in tongues. We got the, old, the lady dying of cancer in the water, baptised her. She starts screaming, the pain's gone, the pain's gone. Got the other lady in the water, she gets baptised, she's just screaming for the glory of God, the glory of God. We better out and pray for people. One woman falls to the ground, oh, she said, I broke my ribs in a car accident. They've been, they've been healed, they've been healed. It was the best healing meeting I've ever been in my entire life. I saw the fingerprints of God manifested that day in ways I've never seen it in any other place. And that young police officer today is a pastor at Bridge Church along with Corey Turner. I led him to Jesus that day. He, we did our doctorates together and he's been a, life, a friend from, he's a Church of Christ minister and a friend to this day. The fingerprints of God. Let me finish. One more thing to say to you. One last area of authority. One last area. One last fingerprint. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus has authority over people, over all the nations of the earth. His father said, ask and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. What is amazing is when, any, when Jesus spoke to sickness, every time it obeyed him. When Jesus spoke to demons, every time they obeyed him. When Jesus spoke to matter itself, it obeyed him. Amazing thing is that sometimes he speaks to people and they don't obey him. It is the last area of resistance in the universe. What about you? I have decided to follow Jesus. What about you? Because that call comes to you tonight. Jesus said, come unto me all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you respond to him? Or will you resist him still? It's the last area of resistance in the universe. The resistance in the human heart. Demons know who he is, and whenever he speaks, they obey. May God find that, uh, at least that level of obedience in you 
that his name might be praised and the day come when you could say along with all those who have come to know Christ, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Father, I pray over my friends tonight. Let the fingerprints of God, let the fingerprints of Jesus impress their hearts to trust him. If they've never trusted him before, let them trust him today. And I pray that before people leave this place tonight, they will encounter your greatness and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.